welcome to Objection to the Rule, your Sunday afternoon news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. We are recording this episode on Thursday, July 29th, and it will begin airing on Sunday, August 1st, 2021. My name is Reese Robinson, and I'm on air today with my co-hosts, Jasmine Smith and Emily Scott. How's it going, ladies? Uh, it's going. Um, discouraging news about all the COVID Delta variant stuffs bringing me down. Yeah, and I just, on that note, I want, you know, I muted myself because as you can hear, there's sirens going on, but um, I just want to encourage everybody listening to still take precautions, you know, try to avoid being into a rush to go back to normal because this thing is still very much going on. I know it's been a long year and a half, but, you know, if you can hold out just a little bit longer, I think, you know, it's, it'll be better in the long run for everybody. Absolutely. We are not out of the clear people. We're not exactly sure what's going to be happening soon. So um, definitely be safe, extra safe. I know we all have loosened up our, uh, our grip on ourselves, but definitely get your vitamins, be healthy and uh, try to limit being in big crowds because we don't know what's on the horizon for the next season. All right, so on this episode today, we will be discussing a famous sommelier getting arrested for arson, Amazon workers getting fired by robots, some good news from the Cleveland baseball team about them changing their name, and some political unrest in Tunisia. So we're going to go ahead and kick off today's episode with our local news segment. Jasmine, take it away. All right, so I want to shout out my friends Matt and Sean because this story stood out to me because it um, it concerns a place that we were at briefly earlier this month. So this information comes from both a Gothamist article written by Jake Offenharts and also a Vanity Fair write-up uh, by Dan Adler. So the Gothamist article is entitled Celebrity Sommelier Arrested for Allegedly Setting Fire to Outdoor Dining Structures. So the article begins, a celebrated sommelier and part owner of a popular Soho wine bar has been arrested for allegedly setting fire to multiple outdoor dining structures in lower Manhattan. Caleb Gonzer, or Gonze, I'm not sure how he says his name, the 35-year-old wine director and co-owner of Compagnie des Vins Surnaturels, was taken into custody on Thursday on a slew of arson and criminal mischief charges. In one July 13th incident, this was like two days after we were at this man's place, a man in shorts and a jacket approaches the outdoor dining structure outside Prince Street Pizza at 3 a.m. Video shows him sparking a lighter under napkin dispensers on separate sides of the shed before casually walking away down the street. Authorities said that Gonzer was responsible for that fire, as well as another set at Forsythia just before midnight earlier this year. In June, he allegedly started a rubbish fire at the corner of Broome and Center Street. Every act of arson has the potential to spread rapidly, endangering the lives of New Yorkers and FDNY members, Fire Commissioner Daniel A. Negro said in a statement. Thankfully, in these incidents, there were no injuries, and the suspect has been apprehended before another fire could be set. Uh, And this information comes from the Vanity Fair article by Dan Adler, 
uh, he writes, Jacob Siwak, the owner of Forsythia, told the New York Times on Wednesday that a man had tried to set fire to the restaurant's outdoor shed four times over the course of at least nine days in January, resulting in about $3,500 worth of repairs. Security camera footage, Siwak said, showed a well-dressed man placing a pile of kindling next to trash, setting it aflame, and waiting for a sizable fire to build before walking away. Siwak added that several of the arson attempts were successful, classifying two of them as pretty damaging and noting that one resulted in flames that were at least two stories high and could have spread to the restaurant and the rest of the building. Tony Sosa, the manager of Prince Street Pizza, told the paper that the damage there was less drastic, but that it could have been very dangerous. The FDNY hasn't indicated any motive for the alleged arson, and Ganser couldn't immediately be reached for comment. We as a company are aware of the incident, and Mr. Ganser is on a leave of absence, La Compagnie des Vincents Naturels said in a statement to Vanity Fair. If there are any follow-up questions at this point, we have no further comment. All three incidents happened within blocks of Compagnie des Vincents Naturels, where Ganser has worked since 2016. That same year, he won a Best New Sommelier Award from Wine and Spirit magazine. Before that, Ganser worked at the ritzy Michelin star, starred 11 Madison Park. And then going back to the Gothamist article, um, last year, Ganser announced that he was running for president on a campaign that included returning civility to politics. The run did not gain much traction. The Manhattan District Attorney will prosecute the case against Ganser. So yeah, like I, I was trying to find a place to go sit outside and like have a glass of wine with my friends and my friend Matt was like, oh, I've been thinking about this place. And we get there, we sit down, and he's like, I don't, I don't know. Let's go. I don't like this. So I, it's just bizarre. Like, I, what do you guys think or what have you heard about this before? Yeah, I just saw a headline about it briefly. I didn't know too much about it at all, and I do appreciate the rundown. Um very like very bizarre like sort of scandalous behavior yeah um yeah it is kind of strange yeah there's no motivation on the record no as far as they had didn't see anything that said that there was a motive being that you know he's a business person and like these other places i guess are they're in the same neighborhood where you know his business is and it's a mm, relatively mm-hmm. new spot it's like mm. I could see potentially it being a matter of you know trying to damage mm-hmm. other people's business so that you know they have to come to your place I don't know mm-hmm. but then with arson like there are also people who you know like pyromania is a thing like there are people that just they get excited or they you know they just enjoy setting fires and watching them burn and people not knowing who did it so I guess we'll have to wait to find out the full story but like my first thought would be he was probably trying to hurt other businesses since they're Mm -hmm. all so close to where you know his business is Mm -hmm. 
I thought it was really interesting your note that he like tried to run for president. Like that, like to me, it denotes so return like civility to politics. Oh, or God. Some shit. Like what? Yeah, I don't know that. That's just like you know, like delusions of grandeur sort of stuff. Like there's like probably some like narcissist sort of thing. Like whether or not it was like he thought he couldn't be caught or like you know some like megalomaniac like on whatever level you know um but yeah that's that's what that sounds like to me now people are just really losing their minds right now because i feel like (laughs) no seriously like i think that people are really just you know the lack the lack of clarity about anything in life right now is overwhelming for people who have some sense of reality but then there's those people who were treading lightly and I'm not even trying to be funny. I'm talking about people who were just maybe slightly unstable or may have become unstable because of everything that's been happening. And they're just kind of, you know, feeling, I guess, like they need to do whatever's on their mind or hearts or whatever they feel. Cause I've just been hearing a lot of really interesting stories about people just being attacked of fires being set just like so many random things and it's just like we are living in chaos right now so um i think what you're saying uh jasmine that maybe this was his motivation to kind of boost his space but i mean how are you going to do that if you're unavailable if you're in jail or (laughs) i don't think he thought he was going to get caught because there were other articles there were other articles that i was reading where they were like there were people that were around that had no they didn't even realize that a fire was being set like because Mm. of the way he was doing it Mm -hmm. it was kind of like stealthy and he was dressed a certain way and he, you know, I think he just, I don't think he thought anyone would know. I don't think he thought he was going to go to jail. Yeah. And that's like, I mean, honestly, like, you know, I'm not a psychologist, blah, blah, blah. But that is like classic, like sociopath stuff. Like just right. thinking that's you're what... like above, you're like smarter than everyone else. So you're not going to get caught. Right. Like, and again, like mm-hmm. I'm not a doctor, blah, blah, blah. But like, as like, you know, whatever social con, you know, it's for social things like that, you know, there are signs, whatever. And again, like. Yeah, I mean, it's just like what a what a strange and the fact that you were you were just there, Jasmine, drinking. This I guy's wine. Awkward, he had, he awkward. Had one, one glass of wine, and then did we you meet did. him? No, <laughs> but I, 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 that would have been great. I know. I gotta say, you know, like I I know it's hard working in the service industry. Like I'm, it's unfortunate that it's yeah. going to affect other people working there because I'm sure he. I'm sure he wasn't acting on behalf of all the people that, you know, worked to get the place off the ground. But I thought it, I was like, I can't believe that we were just there. And my friend was like, you know what, let's go somewhere else. Like, I don't know. I don't want to stay. And then like within days, like he went and tried to burn up like this other place. And it's like freak, you know, I thought it was odd. And like some parts of it, like I was like, whoa, but. In all seriousness, arson is scary as hell because you don't know what could happen. Like once a fire starts, you don't know where it's going to go or who's going to die. Like just the fact that he was doing this repeatedly from January up to like June or July, like has he burnt up other places and we don't know about it? Like, I mean, it's highly possible if he didn't feel like he was going to get caught you know it, maybe yeah. he's gotten away with it before 
because there's a lot of fires, you know, they don't know who started it or what even, you know, there's accidents, but then who knows, like there could be people that are just out here because that's their thing. And then next thing you know, it's like people, you know, barely escaping with their lives or like they're really injured or whatever. That's really unfortunate though. I mean, you know, this is a bizarre story, but I think what we're, the conclusion we're drawing is that people are just kind of like at their the end of their rope and just really just responding to the chaos that is life right now. You know, I I can definitely see a lot of sociopaths being born out of the past couple of years, uh, months, just because of the force conditions and just, you know, chaos. And I, and I, sad to say, I, I feel like we're something else is a brew only because we're half, we're almost through the summer and there's been no, kind of like major thing I hate to be negative but that's kind of just what happens in the summer yeah I mean I think that you know you made an excellent point and I was thinking about that when I was reading I was thinking about like the people wiling out on the airplane you know people being attacked randomly on the street you have yeah. you know what's going on in LA you got these you know anti-vax anti-mass mandate people you know attacking restaurants again like making restaurants the site of a lot of violence and taking out all their frustration and their anger and conspiracy stuff onto just people just trying to go to work you know or they're just trying to live their life i think you know there's a lot of stuff that's been like bottled up and there's people that they take advantage of that to kind of let their worst impulses just fly free. And, you know, we, I guess we'll have to wait and see what comes of the investigation, but I don't know what was going on in his mind, but there's so much chaos right now. I could see him, you know, not thinking he would get caught and thinking it would just blend in as another old New York city going crazy type story. Yeah. It's, 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 it's really hard to tell what is going on anywhere right now. So, you know, if you feel, and this is just, you know, for anyone listening, like straight up, if you feel overwhelmed, if you feel, you know, desperate, or if you feel like you're at a point of no return, just really, if you can, if you, if you have it available, or even if you um, don't just speak to someone, you know, someone in your life to just try to help you bring back the equilibrium. Cause it's really easy to just kind of lose your mind when you feel unstable and there's so many layers to the instability that exists in the world. It's not just people losing their jobs. It's not just people dying from COVID. It's so many other systemic things that are now trickled down to people who may not have experienced it before we just went through all of the things we just did. And so there are new places in society where it's really uncomfortable there, you know? So, um, yeah, I mean, I would like to see what happens with the story and even the restaurant, but, um, yeah, it's just really bizarre. Yeah, thank God no one was hurt. You know, that's the most important thing. No lives were lost. No one was injured. But whew, I'm glad he can't, you know, maybe next time somebody would have got hurt. So at least they figured out what was going on in that part of the city. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that story, Jasmine. Uh, please be vigilant out there, people, and be careful, be mindful. Um, you know, just don't stand too close to the subway platform and just, Please, <laughs> you know, back. yeah, stand back, be aware. Don't have your headphones up too high where you can't pay attention to what's going on. Um, and just be careful, you know, everywhere you go, because people are really unstable right now. And we all have that moment happen to us. Uh, we just have to protect ourselves and protect one another. 
And like they say, if you see something, say something. <laughs> so we're going to go ahead and pop into our first music break for today. This track is called Dreams. It's a new one. And it's by Elijah Blake and Trinidad James. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now we'll have our national news segment. Emily, you're up. All right. Uh, So this story comes from a Bloomberg article from June 28th by Spencer Soper uh, titled Fired by Bot at Amazon. It's you against the machine. Contract drivers say algorithms terminate them by email, even when they have done nothing wrong. Um, So I'm going to be quoting mostly directly or Most of what I'm going to be saying is just direct quotes from this article because it really gets to the heart of it um, quite nicely. So the article opens with the story of Stephen Normandon, who, quote, spent almost four years racing around Phoenix delivering packages as a contract driver for Amazon.com Incorporated. Uh, Then one day he received an automated email. The algorithms tracking him had decided he wasn't doing his job properly. Uh, The 63-year-old Army veteran was stunned. He'd been fired by a machine. Normandon says Amazon punished him for things beyond his control that prevented him from completing his deliveries, such as locked apartment complexes. Uh, Quote, Normandon's experience is a twist on the decades-old prediction that robots will replace workers. 
At Amazon, machines are often the boss, hiring, rating, and firing millions of people with little or no human oversight. Amazon became the world's largest online retailer in part by outsourcing its sprawling operations to algorithms, sets of computer instructions designed to solve specific problems. Uh, For years, the company has used algorithms to manage the millions of third-party merchants on its online marketplace, drawing complaints that sellers have been booted off after after being falsely accused of selling counterfeit goods and jacking up prices. Increasingly, the company is ceding its human resources operation to machines as well, using software not only to manage workers in its warehouses, but to oversee contract drivers, independent delivery companies, and even the performance of its office workers. People familiar with the strategy say Chief Executive Officer Jeff Bezos believes machines make decisions more quickly and accurately than people, reducing costs and giving Amazon a competitive advantage. Uh, Amazon started its gig-style flex delivery service in 2015, and the army of contract drivers quickly became a critical part of the company's delivery machine. Typically, flex drivers handle packages that haven't been loaded on an Amazon van before the driver leaves. Uh, Rather than making the customer wait, flex drivers ensure the packages are delivered the same day. They also handle a large number of same-day grocery deliveries from Amazon's Whole Foods market chain. Flex drivers helped keep Amazon humming during the pandemic and were only too happy to earn about $25 an hour shuttling packages after their Uber and Lyft gigs dried up. But the moment they sign on, flex drivers discover algorithms are monitoring their every move. Did they get to the delivery station when they said they would? Did they complete their route in the prescribed window? Did they leave a package in full view of porch pirates instead of hidden behind a planter as requested? Amazon algorithms scan the uh, gusher of incoming data for performance patterns and decide which drivers get more routes and which are deactivated. Human feedback is rare. Drivers occasionally receive automated emails, but mostly they're left to obsess over their ratings, which include four categories, fantastic, great, fair, or at risk. Bloomberg interviewed 15 flex drivers, including four who say they were wrongly terminated, as well as former Amazon managers who say the largely automated system is insufficiently attuned to the real-world challenges drivers face every day. Amazon knew delegating work to machines would lead to mistakes and damaging headlines, these former managers said, but decided it was cheaper to trust the algorithms than pay people to investigate mistaken firings so long as the drivers could be replaced easily. So far, Amazon has had no trouble finding flex contractors. Globally, some 4 million drivers have downloaded the app, including 2.9 million in the U.S., according to App Annie. And more than 660,000 people in the U.S. downloaded it in the first five months of this year, up 21% from the same period a year ago, according to Sensor Tower, another app tracker. Inside Amazon, the Flex program is considered a great success, whose benefits far outweigh the collateral damage, said a former engineer who helped design the system. Executives knew this was going to shit the bed, this person said. That's actually how they put it in meetings. Uh, The only question was how much poo we wanted there to be. Uh, Quote, as independent contractors, flex drivers have little recourse when they believe they've been deactivated unfairly. There's no paid administrative leave during an appeal. Drivers can pay $200 to take their dispute to arbitration, but few do, seeing it as a waste of time and money. Quote, when human managers get involved, they typically conduct a hasty review if they do one at all because they must meet their own performance standards. 
A former employee at a driver support call center said dozens of part-time seasonal workers with little training were assigned to oversee issues for millions of drivers. Of course, a spokesperson from Amazon called the claims of poor treatment anecdotal and not representative of most drivers. Uh, Quote, Amazon has automated its human resources operation more than most companies, but the use of algorithms to make decisions affecting people's lives is increasingly common. Machines can approve loan applications and even decide if someone deserves parole or should stay behind bars. Computer science experts have called for regulations forcing companies to be transparent about how algorithms affect people, giving them the information they need to call out and correct mistakes. Legislators have studied the matter but have been slow to enact rules to prevent harm. In December, Senator Chris Coons, Democrat of Delaware, introduced the Algorithmic Fairness Act. It would require the Federal Trade Commission to create rules that ensure algorithms are being used equitably and that those affected by their decisions are informed and have the opportunity to reverse mistakes. Uh, So far, his proposal has gone nowhere. Uh, So what really struck me about this story is that, you know, that visceral feeling of frustration and helplessness that it left me with. Um, So we've all been in the situation where we can't get a hold of a human, you know, on the line when there's something like a customer service issue you need help with. But then like imagining that your livelihood depended on that, you know, on that contact that you just can't make because it's not set up for that. um, Really just like it's it's kind of horror. It's a very like dystopian horror movie style. Um, and all the while, you know, Bezos is hoarding the cash he's earned by not hiring humans to travel to fucking space, you know? Um, yeah. I mean, dystopian, I've said that word a few times, but yeah, it's very much so to me. What do you guys think? So I have a odd fear of AI taking over the world. Um, I've always had that since I was a kid. Not so odd. <laughs> I mean, not, not at all. since I was a kid, you know, I really enjoyed like the Jetsons and all that shit. But then there was that like um, this show um, when I was a kid, they had like the daughter who was a robot and she was like a part of the family. Does like, anybody remember oh, that? Wonder. Was that I a- think that might be it. I'm dating myself here. But um, in that show, even though, you know, it was it was a family friendly show. I always thought about the concept of people being able to like have robots for kids and replace their kids or replace family members. Um, and I don't know, just That's like with truly like horror movie, <laughs> it is, you know, as a young, a young person, I really thought about like what would happen, you know, if we could be replaced. Um, and I don't even know why I was able to think that far, but you know, it's t- certainly happening now. Every time I see those big robot things, like in the grocery store, going around cleaning up stuff freaks me out. Um, and the fact that, you know, they're allowing robots to play these dictatorship roles in businesses, I don't, I, it's, it's just really fucking creepy. I, I don't even know. Yeah, I think it's horrible. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I think that there's been a long history in science fiction writing and in film of talking about like that fear. It's a very real fear. And, you know, there was a lot of talk at the beginning with a lot of technology about how to use it to replace workers, because if you have robots, like robots don't form unions and things of that nature, like robots don't have to be paid a certain amount of money. So it puts human beings in like an impossible situation and sets them up against impossible standards. But because it's a machine, 
and there's a, there's actually a book that I enjoyed reading recently. Well, not like maybe a year ago. It's called Weapons of Math Destruction. Mm-hmm. And I'll put up the PDF on our social media pages because you can find the whole book online. But she's a mathematician that explains very well how a lot of these algorithms and things, because they have this veneer of objectivity, or it's, well, it's the numbers, like the number, it's, it's fair because it's a number, but how those things are encoded with human bias. And, you know, they're always going to be on the side of the more powerful person. It's not an objective, neutral force. But people have been so conditioned to see anything that's technological as if it's inherently like fair or something. And we're we neutral. See how far yeah. that's gotten. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I am. Um, I and, you know, none of these things are neutral. And I, I recently saw there's this journalist um, I follow on Instagram and, and she had this whole post about how, you know, I mean, this is this is tangential, but it's related to the idea that like none of the stuff is neutral inherently. And it's all whether it's intentionally meant to make money or um, just intentionally reflects the creator's own wishes, which is not neutral right like you know with this person's perspective of the world and what they're trying to get out of it um it's impossible for that to be like neutral but essentially this journalist posted on instagram about like how she sees instagram as a neutral platform it's just what you do with it um but i was sort of like going back and forth with her where it's like it's i think it's impossible for it to be neutral because at the end of the day um it's meant to make money like that's all you know it is um and amazon i think really has pushed that to I mean, it's a company, it's a business, obviously people know it's trying to make money, but, you know, um, really push the limits of treating its workers with, with, as if they are themselves robots, right. Or like trying to, to push that to its limit. Right. And I think, um, with, there's a lot of industries in this country that don't respect its workers. And I think, you know, especially with the rising gig economy stuff, which is also so heavily based in technology, um, we're really going to see that push and we need regulators, you know, on local state federal level to really regulate that. Cause I don't see the market, you know, regulating it on its own. Right. I think there's as long as there's more workers that are disposable, it'll just keep happening. Yeah, I don't, they definitely won't regulate themselves. And it's very frightening, like how much power these corporations have, because you could not spend a day of your life like on Amazon.com, but they have like power over like internet servers and things like that, that you use. And you might not even realize that that's something, you know, this giant corporation um, controls. And it's, I remember it was very sad when I saw like the the Bessemer Alabama attempt to unionize didn't work and, and uh, like to am- to unionize Amazon workers mm-hmm. it failed and the amount of money and effort that went into forcing that vote to go the way it did was so disheartening and there was this interview that um the Jack that Jacobin magazine had with Christian Smalls who works at um, he's a black man that works on Staten Island in an Amazon warehouse that was trying to organize his workers you know against um you know their treatment and just knowing that you know fighting against these corporations when they're so large can feel like it's impossible but 
I don't know, maybe if enough people realize how evil they are or enough people are like negatively impacted, like we'll eventually see some kind of a change. Unfortunately, I'm not confident that we're going to go back. I feel like at this point, you know, um, just the turn of life that we all had to take um, with COVID and all the things that we already had access to that just we weren't using, you know, it's kind of like now you're conscious. So why would any business invest in real estate and people? Unfortunately, it's just, you know, I, I just don't see it going back the other way. Unless it's, you know, a local business, a small business or something like that, where it's family owned and operated. But I feel like corporate America is just going to keep moving in this direction. And since they are the controllers of everything, we're all just going to have to adjust. Um, and yeah, because it, it's just not logical for them to go back. It, so much more of a cost. And then human, you know, interaction, you know, you never know what's going to happen with people, especially as we were talking about in the first segment, the status of people's mental health at this point. Uh, you know, you can hire somebody completely cool. And then two weeks later, they go through some trauma and you have no idea who's who's working for you. So, um, yeah, definitely. They're taking over, folks. They're taking over. <laughs> All right. So we're going to go ahead and hop into our next music break um, before hopping into a little bit of world news. I had a song plan, but that last segment just made me want to switch it up real quick. So. Nice. This, <laughs> this is a uh, computer love by Zap. <laughs> we'll be right back. Sweet delight I will cherish The memory of 
This is Jasmine. Just as a reminder, you can follow us on social media. We have a Facebook page and we also have an Instagram account. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash objection radio free BK. No spaces, no punctuation. Our Instagram page is at objection to the rule. All one word, no spaces, and again, no punctuation. Thanks, and here's Teresa. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now we will hop over to Tunisia for our world news story. Um, This article comes from the Wall Street Journal, and it is titled, Tunisia, Sole Survivor of Arab Spring, Risk Sliding Back to Autocratic Rule, and it's by Jared Mousen. President Kais Saeed was accused of staging a coup after firing government ministers and suspending parliament after months of anti-government protests. Tunisia, the country whose protest movement promised to transform the Middle East a decade ago, is in turmoil after its president suspended parliament and seized executive power this week, stirring concerns that the only democracy to emerge from the Arab Spring uprisings is slipping back to autocracy. The crisis is threatening to strike a blow against democratic aspirations across the region. And while many Tunisians support the removal of the unpopular government, other fears, others fear that the country could lose its status as North Africa's sole exemplar of democracy after street rallies overthrew a dictator in 2011. Egypt's brief period of democracy ended in a military coup in 2013. Libya, Syria, and Yemen then plunged into war. President Kais Saeed fired top government ministers and sent troops to stop lawmakers from entering the parliament building on Monday after months of anti-government protests over faltering economy, 
and the COVID-19 outbreak that pushed hospitals to the brink. He imposed a ban on gatherings of three or more people um, that largely halted protests in the area. Top political leaders have accused Mr. Saeed of launching the coup. Rachid Ganucci has accused Mr. Saeed of launching it specifically. He says that he um, made a lot of different decisions without addressing the parliament. And Saeed has rejected these claims, saying that the Constitution gives him emergency powers. However, consequently, Tunisia currently has no constitutional court to rule on the dispute. The crisis has been years in the making. Behind Tunisia's reputation as the region's democratic showcase was an incomplete revolution, many Tunisians say. After the fallout autocrat Zen El Abin Ben Ali in January 2011, police and security forces from the old regime resisted attempts to reform and accountability. Wealth remained concentrated among the handful of well-connected families. Political deadlock made matters worse. Tunisia's political system divides power between the president and the prime minister, selected by the parliament, who runs the government. This left the country without a coherent plan to build the economy and tackle problems such as the coronavirus pandemic. Tunisia agreed to a series of loans via the International Monetary Fund that led to budget cuts and ultimately higher taxes on gasoline, phone cards, fruit, and vegetables. The toll on ordinary Tunisians was worsened by authorities' failure to uproot the endemic corruption. The result that was Tunisian the result was that Tunisians had won freedom of expression and elected governments, but lacked jobs and services. The perceived lack of opportunities drove thousands of Tunisians to leave, including via, including uh, many different ways via smuggler boats to Europe. Despair also drove others to suicide. Cases of self-immolation, a form of protest popularized in 2010 and 2011 uprising, tripled during the five years after the revolution, according to a study published in the British Medical Journal, with 148 instances occurring between 2011 and 2015. Public dissatisfaction boiled over in recent months as the long-neglected healthcare system buckled under the pandemic. Tunisia has suffered one of the highest per capita death rates in the world in recent weeks, driven in part by the spread of the new Delta variant. Tunisia has currently registered 167,985 new cases and 4,314 deaths over just the last month. Tunisia's COVID vaccine rollout became another example of a political dysfunction. After the government started offering inoculations to all Tunisians over the age of 18 in July, stampedes took over uh, places where, that were deemed vaccination centers. Prime Minister Hashim Mechi fired the health minister, and the president blamed Mr. Mechi and the Islamists in parliament for the chaos. Furious protesters surged into the streets again on Sunday, demanding the fall of the government. Tunisian officials said Wednesday that prosecutors had launched an investigation into Mr. Ghanoucci's Islamist in, in, in Nadeha party, plus two other parties regarding allegations of receiving foreign funds for campaigning, adding fears to further crackdown. The parties didn't immediately comment on these charges. The aftershocks appear far from over, and Mr. Saeed hasn't specified a path forward as he faces opposition from the four largest parties in parliament, civil society groups, and many others. So this is a huge mess. Um, and it's 
really disheartening considering everything that happened during the Arab Spring. Um, yeah, what, what do you guys take on all the details of the story so far? I listened to, um, I've been telling people about this new podcast that, well, it's not that new, but it's my latest obsession. It's called Through Line through NPR, and they do a lot of really interesting deep dives. Um, and the whole point is to connect things that have happened historically to what's happening in the present. And they have an episode from May called A Symphony of Resistance that's about the Arab Spring in particular. And they talk about, like you mentioned, self-immolation, like there was a street vendor who was being harassed repeatedly by the police. Um, and he was just, this happened to him all the time. And he eventually, like he set himself on fire, like in like desperation and protest and in, in, in Tunisia. And that set off like a lot of different things. Um, so yeah, it's, it's like a lot of other places like where you have a lot of coup attempts. We had our own coup attempts and it's still ongoing in a lot of ways with exactly. you know, try, like trying to overturn voting rights, you know, getting people that are very extreme, you know, in their views into local government to state government, trying to get them to the highest levels of the government. But, you know, I, th I feel like in historical time, 10 years isn't very long. So hopefully I think, you know, it's bad now, but I hope that they're still on the way to stamping out like autocracy and not going completely backwards. It's just not everything is as linear as we hope, especially not progress. So yeah, it's, it's scary, but I'm hopeful that it's not, you know, the end of the story. Yeah, I agree with um, what Jasmine said. I, um, I, first of all, it's crazy that it's been a decade since the Arab Spring. I yeah, feel like, yeah, like I feel that whoa, too. <laughs> like, you know, the Twitter, you know, revolution and all that stuff um, that, you know, sparked a lot of that stuff. Um, that's wild. Um, but yeah, you know, I, again, not an expert in um, foreign, uh, you know, events in many ways. So I, I always am try to be very careful in my commentary. And I always, of course, appreciate Jasmine's reminder that when we all, I think we all attempt to do this too, but um, how we as Americans love to point at other countries and be like, oh, that's fucked up with while forgetting <laughs> that we, of course, have our own coup attempts and have all our own fucked up shit um, all the time. So it's always, I think these stories are good rem not, it's a good time for us to check in about how, you know, we're not exceptional as Americans when it comes to um, things happening, um, which is which is also not to say that it's not important to check in around the world and to pay attention to these things because there's um, what happens around the world is important and um, nothing is an isolated incident either. Um, but yeah. I also hope that this is not the end of the road uh, for fair representation and democracy in Tunisia. Yeah, definitely both of you made some great points. And Jasmine, I like how you compared um, the things that happen in this country as a coup attempt. I think a lot of times we try to separate ourselves because it's not, um, you know, these ununited states um, cover a vast area um, 
of land. And a lot of times it seems like things that are localized may not affect people in other states. But um, I think the biggest thing that came up for me with this article is what is the cost of democracy? You know, um, it seems like the right thing to do to have representation of everyone and, and that it should be fair, that it is an opportunity for the people to participate in choosing who governs them and, and the quality of that person based on how they stand on things. But this to me seems like, you know, um, this president, you know, the fact that he's, he's fired all the layers of the government uh, is very scary. It's scary that someone can have that much power where it kind of reorganizes everything here. And this is where you see historically a lot of infiltration from other countries, you know, big brother shit and they think they can come in and fix it and things like that. But in like, this look specific- at Haiti, like right. he was doing this before he got taken out, he was, you know, firing people, you know, getting rid of judges, people would turn up dead that didn't yeah. agree with him, you know? Absolutely. So, you know, it's just an interesting concept to think that, you know, if the president or if, if, you know, sometimes we have to compare this, what it would be like in our country, just to, just to understand what could possibly be happening there. But, you know, as the article stated, it's like they got, you know, certain freedoms and certain rights, but now it's just the wealth still remained at the top. And in this position where this person has fired all the government, who was supposed to save them? Who was supposed to come in and fix the situation? Um, you know, unfortunately, this is when a lot of violence happening happens. Countries lose their sovereignty because re- regional nations come in and they try to, you know, help the situation when really, you know, they have to figure out a way to do it amongst the people themselves. So um, I'm just really thinking about the people in Tunisia and the surrounding areas. You know, um, I know that there has been a lot of shift in government across the world, but the Arab Spring was such a enormous uh, piece of history that really was a uh, life-changing for a lot of people that grew up in that region. And when I was in grad school, I met a lot of people from that region that, you know, spoke about how important it was for them to have opportunities to even come here and study or be able to speak about the things that they witnessed. So I just really hope that, you know, the country itself is able to solve this problem instead of having infiltration from other countries in the area. And that this president uh, really looks to the people to find the solutions that are necessary to solve the problems. Cause we can't just be overturning shit and, and deciding this is the way we want to do it. When you're representing the lives and, and, and generations of people who have fought to have some level of freedom, some level of um, inclusion and the children that are coming up behind them that were born during this time that experienced that and may not have experienced what their parents had. So this is uh, definitely a story to watch. And, and I love that you brought up that po- uh, that podcast. I'm definitely going to listen to that. I think it will provide some good insight, but yeah, share the story, uh, talk about it, think about how it, it could affect us if something like this happened. Um, and yeah, I guess that's my sentiment this week. Um, Do you know, I believe the national flower of Tunisia is the Jasmine. Look at that. Aww. Look at that. Yeah. We were calling it like the Jasmine Re- Revolution. So, you know, I've never been. I had some Tunisian classmates growing up. And um, one of my classmates' dads, like, came to school and like, was telling us about the history of the country and middle school and everything. And so, yeah, like, every I second what you said, you know, power to the people of Tunisia and down with, you know, imperialist meddling. Like, I hope that they're able to you know, come to a resolution 
um, on their own within, you know, on their own terms that benefits, you know, the people struggling the most. Exactly. And that there could be some unity as well between the various pieces of that society, just so they can get some, their country stable again. All right. So Emily, please grace us with the new, the good news that you have for us this week. All right. So the good news this week is about the Cleveland baseball team finally changing their name. Um, On July 23rd, the New York Times published an article by David Waldstein titled, With Guardians, Cleveland Steps Away from an Offensive Name. After years of pressure and amid a growing trend away from names that reference indigenous people, the team will drop its Indians mascot, which it used for more than 100 years. The article explains, quote, Philip Yenyo has been protesting outside Cleveland's baseball stadiums for 30 years, demanding the local Major League Baseball team change a, a name many consider racist. But next spring, Yenya will put down his signs and take his 11-year-old son inside Progressive Field for the first time. Quote, Yenya will be able to attend because Cleveland announced on Friday that it will change its name from Indians to Guardians, becoming the latest sports team to veer away from team names and mascots that reference indigenous people. For decades, Native American groups like like Yenyos and others have petitioned sports teams to eliminate indigenous names, mascots, and imagery, insisting that they are racist, degrading, and that they promote stereotypes. Momentum for widespread, widespread change has been building in recent years and was accelerated last summer amid the protests for social justice following the murder of George Floyd by Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin. In the wake of large-scale protests for social justice that followed Floyd's death, the Washington football team discarded the name Redskins, thanks in large part to pressure from sponsors like FedEx, Nike, and Pepsi. Cleveland was considered the next highest profile indigenous team name in American sports, and in December, the team decided to make the change after consulting with local and national indigenous organizations. One of the organizations the team turned to was the National Congress of American Indians. Uh, Aaron Payment, NCAI. Uh, NCAI's first vice president and also chairman of the Salt Salt St. Marie tribe of Chippewa Indians, uh, lauded Cleveland for making what he said was a difficult but appropriate decision. Of course, there's some pushback, especially from Trump of all people, um, but you can't stop progress. Quote, in 2019, Cleveland abandoned its caricature Chief Wahoo logo, which Major League Baseball said was inappropriate for use on the field. Quote, the Cleveland team said it planned to make the change official after the current season ends. With that settled, Dr. Payment said his organization and others will focus on various other teams like MLB's Atlanta Braves, the Kansas City Chiefs of the NFL, and the Chicago Blackhawks Blackhawks of the NHL uh, that use native names and imagery. All of those teams said have said they have no plans to change their names. Uh, so the fight continues. Uh, so I know uh, we talk a lot in the show about empty gestures and people patting themselves on the backs for things that don't actually make a difference in the day-to-day realities for marginalized groups of people. Um, and I know that, you know, in some ways this could be seen as that, um, but allowing, but also alternatively, you know, allowing caricatures of human beings to be mascot causes real psychological damage too. So there is that sort of um, reality, you know, tangible intangibleness of it um so stories like these and also stories like these are markers of massive and long overdue shifts in public opinion um that i also think are worth celebrating so that is why this is the good story the good news story this week 
I saw some people, you know, saying some slick shit about not liking the name or that it's not a good name. And people were like, there's multiple teams named after socks. Like, you <laughs> right. know. Yeah, these, no. I wanna, I'm still going to get one of those shirts that, you know, I've, I'm sure you've seen it. It's like instead of saying Cleveland Indians, it just says Caucasians. Oh and it no, has like, it's like, instead <laughs> yeah. of oh, yeah. it has like a blonde white man with dollar signs coming up out of his head <laughs> instead of feathers. And people will wear them and be like stared down and like people right. get angry. It's like, yeah, well. You yeah. don't like it, do you? You know, and I mm-hmm. think it's sad, but because, you know, of the extent of genocide against Native people in a lot of people's lives, I feel like these really offensive caricatures might be, like, the only rep they see of Native people, and that's not acceptable. So I'm happy it's they're gone, mm-hmm. too. Yeah. Definitely. Um, good to hear any of these things changing, and... I love that, um, you know, it's still going on. I hope that if this exists in any other place that is being considered, but the, these changes are, you know, can't correct the history of racism in this country or, you know, exclusion or just uh, disrespect, but it's always good to see that we are moving a little bit in the right direction. So thank you so much, Emily, for that story. And that is it guys this week for objection to the rule thank you guys so much for listening and thank you to everybody who's been supporting the show we really appreciate your support you can catch all of our older episodes on radiofreebrooklyn.org or on the radio free brooklyn app on spotify or on itunes podcast listen up for more independent brooklyn media i'm going to play you out with the final track of the day this song is called fall from grace and it's by an artist named ruby rushton we will see you next week bye Bye. Happy August. Bye. Radio Free Brooklyn is sponsored in part by Pharmagear, offering little or no cost medical braces. For more information is available at 844-598-6639.